Hello and welcome to another episode of the Space Update, part of the Fantastic Total Space Network. Coming up on today's show, we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Gardner from NASA Goddard, uh, talking about James Webb te- Space Telescope and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Ryan, and joining me today is... I'm Mikko, the host of Deep Dive Fridays. I'm Rich LB, co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. And I am Kage, also co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. Thanks for joining us, guys. And as always, uh, we've got uh, Dr. Jonathan Gardner here with us. So would you just briefly like to introduce yourself, uh, Jonathan? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm Jonathan Gardner. I am the Deputy Senior Project Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland in the United States. I am also, I have another title, I'm the Chief of the Observational Cosmology Laboratory at Goddard. Fantastic. Happy to be here. Thank you for popping along. Uh, absolutely fantastic having you on the show. Uh, obviously, before we get, in, get into it, um, some of our viewers might not have heard about James Webb's telescope. Do you want to give us a brief, brief overview into the James Webb telescope and maybe lead on to what you're hoping to achieve with it? Absolutely, yes. The Webb is the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, one of the most successful telescopes in the history of our planet. And Webb has been uh, in production for almost 20 years, and we're gearing up for launch later this year. Now, it's going to be a large large telescope, bigger than Hubble. It's the successor to Hubble and um, the Spitzer Space Telescope, another infrared telescope. And Hubble works in visible light, and with Webb, we're going to extend that into the infrared, redder light than we can see. It's going to be a very cold telescope, 225 degrees below zero Celsius. And it's a, an international project of NASA and the European and Canadian space agencies. So that's kind of the top level view of what it is. And as for what it will do, um, be happy to talk in what, much more detail about that. But uh, the, at, basically, it's an observatory. We will um, point it at, at stars and galaxies and planets in the sky and gather the data and learn a whole lot more about what we're looking at. With um, It's a general purpose observatory. Instead of being an experiment doing one thing, it's uh, multi-capable and will be able to address almost every aspect of astronomy. Fantastic. Um, just to essentially start from the beginning, beginning leading on from that, what were the biggest challenges in the initial de- design stage, if you like, um, with the James Webb Space Telescope in terms of hardware and what you want to study and achieve? Uh, and also, were there any trade-offs in regards to that in terms of weight? You couldn't put something in there that you really wanted because it was too heavy and stuff like that. Sure. So in the mid-1990s, uh, about five years after Hubble was launched in 1990, uh, astronomers and NASA started to think about what do we want to have to come next? What's the successor going to look like? And it was quickly realized that we didn't just want a, a carbon copy replacement because that would do the same things that Hubble is doing. We wanted to take the science beyond. And in one way in particular, in the early days, uh, Hubble could see 
um, very far away and very far back towards the the beginning of the universe, and looked at looking at galaxies um, that uh, that were existing in the very early universe. We realized that some of those galaxies already were old, and we needed to go further back and further away. And in order to do that, we needed a telescope that was bigger than Hubble. So that's the one thing about Webb that's that's very different from Hubble, it's bigger. So Hubble has a 2.4 meter diameter primary mirror and Webb will be six and a half meters in diameter. Yeah, the next thing is that um, we uh, astronomers decided that they wanted to push into the infrared uh, with Webb further uh, further beyond the, um, the the visible light that we can see. Now Hubble can work in the ultraviolet and visible light and a little bit into the infrared, but astronomers wanted to go further into the infrared, and that means it had to be cold. So those were the two big design uh, characteristics that the engineers then sat down and started thinking: How do we how do we make a telescope that's bigger than Hubble, and how do we let it to be let it cool down to uh, as I said, 225 degrees below zero? So to make it bigger, we had to have a foldable telescope. Uh, the six and a half meter diameter mirror has to fit inside a five meter diameter rocket. So we had to fold the whole thing up. It had to be light weighted. Um, so the, um, the web is actually only about half of the mass of Hubble, but a much bigger telescope. And that led us to having a segmented mirror design. So if you can see, if you look at the mirror of Webb, you see 18 hexagons put together into the primary mirror. And the, um, in comparison, Hubble is, is a single piece of glass. Uh, then, so, so Webb had to be foldable and um, it's, it's a lower, lower mass. And then another trade is that in order for it to cool to these very cold cryogenic temperatures, we had to get it away from the Earth. So Hubble's in what's called low Earth orbit. Um, about uh, it, it orbits the Earth every 90 minutes. And when it goes on the daytime side of the, of the Earth, the sunlight is shining on it and the Earth light is reflected back onto the telescope. It goes behind the Earth each orbit but uh, and starts to cool off. But we wanted a telescope that would be cold all the time. And so Webb is going to be in a special orbit that is uh, 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth called the second Lagrange point. And so those are the, the basic design criteria of um, of Webb, uh, bigger than Hubble and cold. So it's sitting behind a giant tennis court sized sun shield, allowing the, the heat of the telescope to just radiate into deep space. And the telescope is always on the dark side of this sun shield and always in uh, shielded from both the sunlight and the earth light. So those were the challenges, and that's that's makes for a very complicated space observatory, and that's why we've taken 20 years to build it. We're almost there. 
Almost, almost. Um, I know you had a, a storm during the testing. Uh, I heard that on the news and everything. Uh, something about emergency delivery of liquid nitrogen during the testing. Um, I know that's a cold running uh, telescope and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the testing of the telescope and the instruments um, was done in a vacuum chamber, uh, what we call a thermal vacuum chamber or cryogenic vacuum chamber. So we put it into this giant giant chamber at the um, Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, pumped out all of the air, uh, cooled it down using liquid helium down to its operating temperature. And uh, that was an interesting chamber because that was actually, that vacuum chamber was built for Apollo and the the lunar astronauts, the, the Apollo astronauts practiced walking uh, in their spacesuits inside the same chamber that, that Webb went into. Uh, that was a couple of years ago, and it, uh, we got hit by Hurricane Harvey, which dumped 51 inches of rain onto the Houston area during that time. Um, uh, a lot of heroism uh, by the people who were running the test. I mean, some of them had their houses flooding and they were in there working on the, uh, the web telescope testing. Um, and at one point it was running the risk of uh, running out of the cryogens, running out of the liquid nitrogen. And um, some people got on the phone with the company president um, and got a special delivery to the Houston area uh, to get that in there. So we wouldn't have to warm up the telescope and and stop the test. That test took about three months. It took a month to cool down to its operating temperature, a month worth of testing, and then another month to warm up. Put it through its paces and it, it, it all works. So it's worth it in the end. And that uh, origami style for the mirror is quite quite unique. Um, what, apart from making it fit inside the payload fairing of the rocket and everything like that, what inspired that design? Did the mirrors just need to be more flexible rather than rigid, one like Hubble? So the mirrors itself, there are uh, 18 mirror segments. Each one is 1.3 meters. Um, from the flat to flat on the hexagon. Um, we, it's a hexagon design because that's the way tiling works. Um, basically, the way optics of telescopes work is that it's good to be close to having a circular telescope. You, you end up with a sharper, uh, sharper image of a, of a star with the circular telescope. Um, so the, the geometry is simply how to make something pretty close to a circle out of 18 different segments. Now, each of those mirror segments, as I said, is, is 1.3 meters from flat to flat on the hexagon. It's made of beryllium. Beryllium is a very lightweight, very stiff metal. And the, uh, the, the big advantage of beryllium for Webb is that um, when you get it down to the operating temperature, it doesn't change its shape if the temperature varies by a, by a degree or two. Um, there will be a temperature gradient across the face of the primary mirror going from about 30 degrees above absolute zero to about 50 degrees above absolute zero uh, at, the, at the top point. Uh, with beryllium, it doesn't change shape. Um, we also lightweighted it. So the back of the mirror segments is all 
um, etched out. So there's this kind of honeycomb structure. And then the front of the mirror, the reflective part is gold. Uh, gold is very highly reflective in the infrared. Um, and uh, um, so that's that's what leads to the, the gold color of the mirror. Now, you asked about um, how it compares to Hubble. There is uh, one thing we had to give up when we coated the mirrors in gold. Gold will reflect gold-colored light. That's why it looks gold. It'll reflect red light, and it reflects infrared very well, but it doesn't reflect the blue light, and it doesn't reflect the ultraviolet. So Hubble has been... Uh, an ultraviolet and visible light telescope. There is some overlap in the light that it, that you can see, but I'll tell you what astronomers really are looking forward to since Hubble is still going strong is using the two telescopes together. So uh, we're, we're um, planning to use Webb to follow up all of the discoveries that uh, Hubble has made, um, but we want it to go the other way as well. We learn something um, about a, a star or a galaxy or a planet in the infrared and we'll say, oh, I wonder what that looks like in the ultraviolet. And so we'll still have Hubble. Um, as long as it keeps going, we'll be using the two telescopes together. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, do you want to come in, Kagi or, or Rich, with a quick question or anything? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so can you walk us through the the process of preparing uh, James Webb for its mission? So, uh, from from the launch until uh, the last of its thirty uh, day deployment, um, can you just walk us through what that looks like? Sure. Um, should we run the video that shows the deployment sequence? Is that what you'd like to do? Um, after launch, Webb will be launched from uh, South America um, on an Ariane 5 rocket. And we get rid of the rocket, we get rid of the fairing, and then we start to do the, all of this unfolding. First thing to come out is the solar panels to provide power and a communication antenna. And then we will start to fold out the five-layer uh, sun shield that will protect the telescope from the sunlight and from the earth light. You can see in the video the two uh, the two pallets have been folded out. There's a deployable tower which will separate the sun shield and the spacecraft from the telescope. And then we will start to un unwrap and uh, fold out the five-layer sun shield. The membranes on this sun shield are called Kapton. It's kind of a plastic material, fairly thin. Um, shiny on one side so that it reflects the sunlight away. And there are five layers, each separated by uh, almost half a meter um, to allow the heat to escape in between the five layers. The uh, last deployments then are the secondary mirror comes out on its three-legged spider and the two side wings of the primary mirror are folded out. That's what we just saw is a process that will take place about the first two to three weeks after launch. We'll have all of the major deployments done. But then we need to uh, turn 18 individual mirrors into one common optical surface. Uh, this is called phasing the mirror. And that actually will take three months. It's a three month long process. So. 
when we uh, when we get all of the deployments done and we move the the mirrors off of their kind of stowed configuration, we'll point the telescope at a at a bright star, and um, once it's cooled down enough that we can turn on the the near infrared camera, one of the main imaging cameras, we'll take a picture, and we will see. 18 out-of-focus images of that bright star. Uh, so we then start to move each of the 18 mirror segments so that they line up together, so they're all pointed at the same place. And then we have to measure the, the phase or the, the whether the, the light that's hitting the mirror is being reflected back with the same wavelengths um, as the other mirror segments. That's a very long, complicated process of measuring um, whether the whether the lights all, all phased up. Uh, it's also an iterative process. So we'll go through it, we'll get a pretty good picture image, then we'll undo it and redo it again. And then we'll start, once we got it perfect in one place in the field of view, one part of the, the picture, we will then extend that to the rest of that camera, the near-infrared camera, and once we can turn on the other th three cameras, we'll make sure that they are phased up in focus as well. So that takes us to about four months after launch, um, and then we need to check out all of the instruments. There are four scientific instruments. Uh, I've mentioned the near-infrared camera. Uh, we have a near-infrared spectrograph, a spectrograph uh, as, as somebody puts it, it puts the fizz in astrophysics, going from astronomy pictures to astrophysics of really understanding what we're looking at. Um, so the spectrograph breaks up the light and you can see the components, um, the, the el chemical elements that make up what you're looking at. It also allows us to measure um, velocities through the, the Doppler shift. Uh, so that's the near-infrared spectrograph. And that's actually a contribution from the European Space Agency. Um, we also have the uh, mid-infrared instrument, which is the longest wavelengths that Webb can see. Uh, that's, a, that's a camera that does both imaging and spectroscopy and will be very powerful at studying the formation of stars and planetary systems within our own galaxy. And then finally, the fourth instrument was provided by the Canadian Space Agency, and that's a specialized camera designed to study a particular kind of extrasolar planet or, or extra exoplanet, um, as well as doing some, uh, again, some specialized things with uh, planetary dust disks and uh, distant galaxies. Um, so. After launch, we've got one month to uh, do the major deployments and to cool down the telescope to the point where we can we can start using the instruments. Three months to phase up the mirrors, get the, the mirror to work perfectly as a single optical surface, and two months to check out the instruments. And then at launch plus six months, we'll start to do the science that people are all excited about. Amazing, thank you. <laughs> um, and there's a there's a very complicated dance to uh, this this whole thing uh, to get from uh, leaving Earth's uh, orbit to 
uh, getting to the L2 Lagrange point where it'll uh, finally rest all the uh, various puzzle pieces that have to uh, uh, fall into place in order to basically assemble itself. Um, so what, what happens if there is any, uh, any difficulties with these, uh, with these puzzle pieces unfolding and assembling, if there's any failures with those things, like for example, a tear in, uh, one of those sun shields, um, what kind of recovery options are in place? Well, so one of the reasons why it's taken so long to uh, build this telescope is because of the process of making a major uh, space telescope and observatory like this is um, also iterative. What we do is we will build a small component, like, for example, a detector to go into an instrument, and we'll test it and make sure that it, it works. And we'll shake it and blast it with sound as if it were being launched, and then we'll make sure that it still works. Then we put that detector into an instrument, into a camera, assemble the camera together, and we do the testing again. We put it into a vacuum chamber to make sure it works. Um, we will shake it and, and blast it with sound, vibration and acoustic testing at the instrument level. We put the instruments together into the compartment behind the telescope, we test it again. We assemble the telescope with the instruments, and that was the big test that we did at um, the Johnson Space Center in Houston that I mentioned earlier. Um, testing testing it again. And then finally, now we're in the process, we have assembled the telescope together with the spacecraft and sun shield. We put that whole thing through a simulated launch um, with the vibration and acoustic uh, sound blasting um, uh, and, and did a final deployment test doing the, the testing the, the deployment of the sun shield and the um, the telescope, we're now, having done that test, we're now in the process of the final assembly, final uh, folding it up, getting it into the launch configuration so that we can ship it to the launch site um, later this summer. All of that testing is designed to, is a process that NASA has worked out over the last 50 years or 60 years of, um, of the space program it's a process that we've worked out so to make sure that things will work when they get into space. Nothing's going to, to make sure that nothing's going to break due to the vibrations or the sound of the rocket, because we've already tested that on the ground. Um, things will work in, in vacuum and they'll work in the, uh, at the temperatures um, that they will see in space again, because we've tested that in vacuum chambers in the ground on the ground. So yeah, it's a it's a complicated process, um, a long process. I will say that during the deployments, um, we will be in constant communication with the spacecraft, of course, um, and we've got telemetry telling us where things are, how things have gone. If we push out um, the booms to pull out the sun shield and it doesn't look like it's right, we can back it up and try again. Um, but uh, in, at the end of the day, you know, so we'll, we'll know what, we'll know what's, um, where it is at every point and uh, we'll be able to, uh, to, to try again if something's not working. 
Um, there is uh, also some redundancy. All of the electronics have dual electronics. So if side A um, has a component failure or something, we can switch to side B. Um, no, uh, we, we always aim at no single point failures. It would take two failures to actually uh, yeah, have yeah. A, a really bad day. So, um, so that's, uh, that's the plan. And um, it's it's why things uh, it's it's why space programs are are complicated and expensive because we have to do all of this testing to make and sure it'll work. And I'm sure it'll be all go smoothly on on the day. Hopefully, <laughs> um, last year discovery of a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting a white dwarf star caused uh, quite a luster among the community. Um, I know we're probably going to see a lot more of uh, studies with the James Webb Telescope. Uh, studying dwarf stars and everything um uh, but absolutely incredible discovery yeah will that be on the top 10 list of things to start looking for sure so uh exoplanets actually are something that um was not considered 20 years ago when we first started building or first started designing the web telescope exoplanets were still kind of new we we knew about um a few dozen um but we didn't know a whole lot about them whereas now we've got uh hundreds thousands of exoplanets that we have and we have a a smaller mission, NASA's got a smaller mission called the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, um, TESS. And TESS is designed, from the start, was designed to find good targets for web to follow up. It's kind of a, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful science mission in its, in its own, but it's also, to some extent, a finder scope. So what this Jupiter-sized planet that orbits, orbits a white dwarf, um, what what that that is a, a type or a that's a an exoplanet that goes between the star and the telescope it's just a chance alignment but if you look at enough stars that have planets some of them will go across the face of the star and this is very valuable for astronomers because when the planet goes between the star and the telescope then the light from the star goes through the atmosphere of the planet and then gets to gets to Webb or Hubble or whichever telescope's looking at it, we can analyze that light that has gone through the atmosphere and determine the constituents of the atmosphere. This is uh, one of my colleagues called it sniffing alien atmospheres to see what atmospheres on other planets are made up of. And so we can look for things like um, you know, we've already already with Hubble, we found um, hydrogen and uh, some some uh, uh, nitrogen and and but with Webb, we'll be able to start looking for molecules like methane and carbon dioxide and water vapor um, and look for the types of atmospheres that um, might be indicative of planets holding. That, that would be conducive to having life on the planet, um, ozone, uh, and so forth. Um, that's a that's a very exciting thing that Webb can uh, will be able to do, and we've got a long list of targets. Some of them were found, um, like this this discovery that you mentioned. Some of them that were found by TESS. Others that are found by 
ground-based telescopes and um, other projects. But but the transiting exoplanets are sort of the most valuable uh, for follow-up because we can look at their atmospheres. But we also have the capability um, of uh, looking with finer detail and separating the planet from the, the very bright star that it's in orbit around and getting direct uh, reflected light off of the planet or emitted light if it has any. Um, so we can do both those techniques, both what's called coronography, where we block out the light of the star and see the planet next to it, and then also transiting exoplanets. And as I mentioned, um, one of our instruments, the nearest near-infrared um, uh, near infrared imager and slitless spectrograph, uh, has a special mode that is particularly designed to uh, look at transiting exoplanets um, around stars that are fairly bright, like even perhaps some stars that you can see without a telescope. Um, those are bright, they're nearby often, and uh, we can get the, because they're so bright, we can get the best data and learn the most about uh, those kinds of planets. Um, so yeah, we're looking for small rocky planets like the Earth, Earth-like planets. Um, we're looking for, looking uh, for the atmospheres of those planets, and uh, ho hopefully we'll be able to see whether or not some of those planets might have liquid water on their surface. Um, or as yeah, somebody yeah. said, uh, beachfront property is um, most valuable real estate in the universe. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And we actually have a friend here on our server, Ryan McDonald, who is working on the project and he has done the paper on the white dwarf opportunity. Yeah. But I would like to ask you, the journey with James Webb has been long and complicated. What has been the highlight so far for you? Uh, so highlights of um, the project, uh, the, I would say that, that one of the things that I'm most excited about um, what Webb can do is uh, studying distant galaxies. Um, this is actually the research that I did with Hubble, um, uh, both before I started working on Webb and also my own scientific research uh, uh, continues, um, working with Hubble to study the statistics of galaxies and the, uh, the change in the average properties of galaxies over time. This is evolution of galaxies. Um, this was the very first idea that um, that astronomers thinking about what the successor to Hubble should be came up with. They wanted to understand how galaxies change, and in particular, how can we see uh, further back in time to when the first galaxies formed after the Big Bang. Um, so that's that's the type of science that I'm most excited about, and. Uh, you might be wondering how we can look backwards in time. And that's because it, as you look at things that are further away, it takes time for the light to travel from a distant star or a distant galaxy to the, to the Earth, to our telescope. Uh, if it's the nearest star four light years away, it takes four years to travel for the light to travel from there to here. So we see that star as it was four years ago. But with galaxies, um, the nearest galaxy is a million light years away, and distant galaxies can be billions of light years away. 
And the universe is 13.8 billion years old, so 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. And Hubble can take us to galaxies that are uh, within the first billion years uh, after the Big Bang. Um, that's how far we can see with Hubble. But when we see, when we look at those galaxies, some of them appear to us to to have evolved stellar populations. So the stars in the galaxies are indicative that they're already several hundred million years old. So to see the first stars, sorry, the first galaxies that formed in the universe, we need to go further than Hubble, and that's uh, that's the the initial motivation for uh, a telescope that's bigger than Hubble and that goes further into the infrared. So looking backwards um, to when the first galaxies form, um, it, it's kind of a, a paradigm of physics that if you can specify the initial conditions, if you know what something's like when it first started, it's much easier to understand changes over time. So how those, how the, the gas from the um, that started in the Big Bang, turned into galaxies, evolved over time to be galaxies like our own Milky Way with stars and uh, planets in them. Um, so that's that's the that's the science I've been uh, most motivated by. And I'll tell you, there's a really cool piece of technology in our near infrared spectrograph that will make that um, that science. Uh, easier. And that's a micro shutter array. Um, so this is a MEMS device. MEMS stands for Micro Electro, Electro Mechanical Systems, MEMS. Um, it's basically a moving part on a chip, um, on a computer chip. So we have uh, an array of tiny windows. Each window is 100 by 200 micrometers, so um, a tenth and two tenths of a millimeter. Um, and each of these windows is individually openable or closable um, through by sending commands to the telescope. So what we'll do is we'll point the spectrograph at a, uh, a field like the Hubble Ultra Deep Field that's filled with galaxies and we'll open up the little windows where there's a galaxy and we'll close the windows around it to block out any contamination um, background light or, or other galaxies and uh, be able to measure the properties of um, 100 or more uh, galaxies in each picture. And so to build up the statistics of how galaxies change over time, we will be able to, instead of doing them one at a time, or maybe if you have a long, um, long opening, long slit opening, you can get two at once if you line it up right. We'll be able to do 100 galaxies at once. And uh, this will give us the statistics to understand things like the formation of the heavy elements over time. How did those how did the elements build up in stars and be redistributed through supernova um, and then form into later generation stars? That build up over time from the first galaxies to the present day. Um, that's actually the capability that I personally am most excited about in this telescope. Um, other astronomers have their favorite uh, favorite um, part of the instruments or the favorite science that they're gonna do as well. 
fantastic, fantastic. Um, as well, uh, Black Falls are also the universe's greatest mystery. Um, what secrets could theoretically be unlocked using the James Webb Telescope? Sure. So black holes um, are, by their nature, um, they're black in and of itself. They don't emit any light. However, uh, anything falling into a black hole will get um, get heated up as it falls down. Basically, the, the gravitational energy, um, as things fall into a black hole, heats it up and, and makes the makes it glow. It, black holes will also tear apart anything that's falling into it. Um, so something that starts out as a star, if it gets too close to a black hole and starts to fall in, it'll get ripped into pieces and uh, turned into um, a stream or even a, a disk of material around the black hole. That disk will heat up and start to fall in. Um, as material falls in over time, the black hole then gets bigger. It, it accumulates mass. And so Webb will be very good at studying this, um, how black holes grow over time, particularly black holes that are in the center of galaxies. Um, we have uh, shown with Hubble, astronomers have shown with Hubble and other telescopes that pretty much every large galaxy has a black hole in, in its center, whether or not it's, it's a bright one. If it is, if it is very bright, it's called a quasar. If it's moderately bright, it's called an active galactic nuclei or AGN. And then some black holes in galaxies, you can only tell they're there because they're um, of the the effect on the on the stars in the galaxy, um, their motions. But um, they're not. It's not emitting emitting light. But there's a black hole at the center of most galaxies. Um, including our own Milky Way, and um, determining what powers these black holes, well, how they um, how they accrete matter, and um, uh, how they grow, and what causes the emission. Um, often, often these disks around black holes are very dusty. They've got lots of the heavier elements that build up into little pieces of dust. And that dust will block visible light, but the infrared light that Webb will see can get through dust clouds, um, kind of like radio waves can go through even the walls of your house and get into your, um, you know, your Wi-Fi uh, receiver on your computer. Um, infrared light can get through dust clouds, and so we'll be able to see into the inner parts of these disks around black holes, see how they're how they're powered. Um, and also a really interesting thing is that um, since we since every galaxy has a big black hole at its center, um, there's a relationship between the size of the galaxy and the size of the black hole. And that means that galaxies and black holes grow together. They change over time together. And figuring out why that happens and how it happens will be one of the goals of Web for studying black holes. Amazing. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that really does. Uh, Dr. Jonathan, I was wondering whether you could talk to us today at all about Louvois. What could you share with us today about Louvois? <clears throat> 
Sure. So um, just as in 1995, astronomers got together and, and started thinking about what should come after Hubble, um, astronomers now are starting to think about what comes after Webb. Um, and in fact, every 10 years, there's a process run by the United States National Academy of Sciences, which will uh, look at um, all of the, the ideas that people have. It's a really big process and results in a book length um, uh, report. And it's done every 10 years. So it's called a decadal survey of astronomy and astrophysics. And that is um, provides the recommendation to NASA, to the National Science Foundation, and this year also to the Department of Energy within the United States about what um, each of the agencies should do in the area of astronomy and astrophysics. So the Webb telescope, um, it wasn't called that then, but in the 2000 decadal survey was the number one priority. So NASA said, all right, we've had this as an idea. Let's just start building it now. And in 2010, the, um, the top recommendation um, was a project called that at that time was called WFIRST, or the Wide Field Infrared Space Telescope. Now it's called the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, um, named after uh, the astronomer who worked for NASA that is considered to be the mother of the Hubble Space Telescope, Nancy Roman. Um, and the, the, uh, the Roman telescope will be uh, the same size as Hubble, but a much bigger field of view. It will be able to map the sky, large areas. When you look at large areas, you can find rare things. Um, and if we can get um, Roman uh, launched before the end of, of Webb's mission, we'll be able to have the two of them working together. So you asked about Louvoir. So Louvoir is one of the possibilities that is currently being um, uh, studied for uh, what is the 2020 decadal survey. They're, they're about to bring it out in a couple of months and um, astronomers and, and NASA are eagerly waiting to see whether, um, whether Louvoir gets the thumbs up for um, being the successor to Webb, the successor to the Roman, Roman Space Telescope. Um, and the next big thing. So Louvoir would be even bigger than Webb and uh, going back to visible light, ultraviolet light, it's called the Large UV Optical Infrared Telescope. That's what Louvoir stands for. Um, there are competing concepts. There's, uh, there's an idea, um, a, a mission called HabX or that would be focused on studying exo exoplanets. There's a uh, a mission called the Origin Space Telescope, which would be taking beyond Webb in, in further into the infrared, longer wavelengths. And then there's an X-ray telescope um, called Lynx. Those are kind of the four concepts that the Decadal Survey is looking at, um, and we'll be making a, a ranked priority list. Um, which which one do we does that should NASA be starting first? Um, so Louvoir is uh, better even than Webb at studying exoplanets and looking for either the conditions of life or possibly even what astronomers would call biomarkers, which would be um, um, things in the atmosphere of an exo exoplanet that probably can only be there because of uh, 
because there's life on that planet. So that's something that's that's probably beyond the capabilities of Webb, although astronomers will certainly be looking uh, looking with Webb to, to look for the conditions of life. But Webb will probably be able to tell us whether or not a planet has um, liquid water on its surface. Is it the right temperature for water-based life? Um, but uh, seeing things like um, ozone and methane in disequilibrium, the way they are in the, in the, Earth, uh, the Earth's atmosphere, the ozone and the methane in the Earth's atmosphere is maintained by life on Earth. Um, perhaps directly, if you can see the color of chlorophyll, that's an indica indication that you've got plants. Um, and again, if you if you looked at the Earth from space and you, you could see that there is green, there are green forests, there are plants, um, you, can, you can see the, uh, the colors of chlorophyll. Those kinds of things are beyond web, but that's what Louvoir is designed to do. Amazing, amazing. Um, we talked about uh, things coming online and offline and everything, but uh, we've seen the likes of Mars Insight and Juno, the Juno mission, getting mission extensions recently. Um, would you fully expect James Webb's telescope to last double or triple it, triple its planned operational use, a bit like Hubble's on continually ongoing? Right. So um, with Webb, we have only one thing that gets used up over time, and that is fuel. So Webb is in, uh, in orbit around the second Lagrange point. Um, that's not a stable point. It doesn't just stay there. Um, we have to use the, the rockets, the thrusters, to maintain that orbit. So we'll be firing the rockets about every three weeks during the course of its mission. Not using a lot of fuel, but it does use up the fuel that we have on board um, to maintain that orbit. If we didn't do that, it would drift away from the L2 point and uh, get too far away from the Earth. The other thing that we need to do with those rockets is uh, manage the angular momentum of the observatory. So when we point the telescope, the, the sun shield acts like a, a sail and the sun will push on it and impart angular momentum into the telescope. Um, and then we point in a different direction and it builds up in a different way. We store that angular momentum in reaction wheels and every so often we need to use the, the thrusters to get rid of that angular momentum into space. Again, about every three weeks we'll use the rockets and Webb will carry 10 years of fuel. So. 10 years um, is, is the nominal lifetime of, of the mission because um, when we run out of fuel, then we no longer can, uh, can operate the observatory. But um, it's always good to carry some extra um, just in case. And so we've topped up the tanks all the way to the top. And so we do have extra fuel. Um, how much extra fuel, we won't know until after the launch. And that's because um, some of that fuel in the tanks is there just in case the launch doesn't go quite right. So if we get a really good launch that puts us right onto the track to uh, the L2 point, you know, exactly the way we want it, then that extra fuel directly translates into extra lifetime. And there's a lot of leverage on that. Um, we, we could be getting, you know, five years longer, uh, maybe even more than that. So 
the prospect of um, of having web continue to work uh, well into its second de decade is a very real possibility. Um, the uh, the nominal um, prime, what's called the prime mission, is actually only five years, um, but that's really just a planning um, a planning thing. We've got you know we've got the budget for five years in the plan, but just like Hubble, we know that NASA is going to keep it going as long as it works. Um, it's Hubble's lifetime is not going to be limited by money. It's not going to be that oh we decided it's not worth it anymore. We'll keep it going as long as as long as it's returning good science. We'll keep Hubble going. Um, same is true for Webb. So with um, th there's been a lot of uh, incredibly fast advancements with uh, SpaceX, especially, but also other major players in the. Uh, space industry. Um, we might have New Glenn uh, here soon and many other options uh, that were not even on the radar when James Webb was uh, first being designed. Um, is Do you think that uh, there are any uh, options that are currently being considered for serviceability uh, for James Webb, uh, exploring, for example, uh, the possibility to use a starship or um, many of the other options that are coming down the road? So um, you ask about serviceability. So Hubble was designed to be serviced. Um, to some extent, you could say that the space shuttle and Hubble grew up together, that um, the launch of Hubble was one of the most challenging launches on the space shuttle um, that it did. So the space shuttle was sized to hold Hubble and Hubble was sized to fit in the in the bay of the of the space shuttle. But Hubble was also designed to be very modular. You know, if you if you look at the pictures of the astronauts pulling the cameras out, um, they kind of you know they've got handles on them and they just slide out. Um, and they're they're it's like pulling a suitcase out off of a shelf. Um, it's designed to be a a single. Uh, a thing that's on rails that comes out. Um, the the choice was made, or the trade was made early on for Webb that we would not make the uh, mission, the observatory, modular like that, um, because when you make it when you make the it modular, you end up putting a lot of extra mass and volume into having that serviceability essentially if you don't design it to be serviceable you can make things much more inter interconnected fit much tighter um and uh you know you can put one instrument in the middle and then you can put another one on the outside um and that's the way web was designed uh basically to make it lower mass and more capability in the same amount of mass, the same amount of volume. Um, Web is also uh, cryogenic. It's it's very very cold. Um, once it's fully deployed and cooled, we wouldn't want to have anything get too close to it um, because any kind of gases would condense on the telescope, fog up the mirrors, um, and so forth. Um, so we don't have plans for servicing web. Um, it was not built, it was not designed to be serviceable. It doesn't have that modular design the way Hubble does.
That said, um, if it's not working and somebody wants to go out there and fix it, um, I would be all for that. Uh, <laughs> but um, but we, we, we're at, at this point um, and for the last 20 years, we've been very focused on getting the telescope launched um, uh, with its current design and not adding complication or mass or volume in order to, uh, to make it serviceable. Um, because at the moment we don't have the capability of going 1.5 million kilometers from the Earth. That is um, four times the distance of the moon. So the furthest that we've sent astronauts, it's four times that distance uh, to get out to the L2. Not impossible, but, um, you know, um, there, there, um, there will be human uh, spaceflight missions out that far and, and further uh, in the future. Um, but we don't have that now. And so it's not designed yeah. for that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at this point, we take uh, one que Weaver question. Uh, Joey asked, what can you say about how how wavelengths bend around distant galaxies and how likely is it that we can get multiple views of the same distant galaxies at different times in the past? Yeah, very good question. Um, what you're referring to is called gravitational lensing. And that is because um, under general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity, light itself responds to gravity. Um, you can kind of imagine if, if you think of light as, as photons, particles, um, they would have a mass and they would fall into, um, fall into a gravitational field. It's like that. It's actually a, a little bit um, more than that with uh, general relativity. But that means that a big concentration of dark matter or even light matter um, with a strong gravitational field will bend the light that's going by there. So when you have a cluster of galaxies and behind it you've got um, more further further away you've got other galaxies, the light from that galaxy will kind of go by the cluster and get bent around and fall into it as it goes. Um, and if you've got it lined up right, you can have light that comes out, um, light goes in all directions from the, the lensed object, the, the distant galaxy. It goes out this way and it comes around, I don't know if you can see this with the camera, but comes around the galaxy and reaches the telescope from that direction. And then it can go around the other direction and, and reach the telescope. Um, so light that went out in two different directions will then get focused back um, and, and reach the telescope. And if those paths are different, then you're seeing light from different times um, because it took longer to get there. Um, that will happen most often with um, with a, a, a very um, high concentration of, of dark matter, like perhaps even a um, lensing by a, by a black hole. Um, but by measuring, the, if you can actually have something that varies over time and you see the light change in one image and then you see it, it change a little bit later, uh, that's a way of measuring um, properties of the universe itself. The, um, the distances and, and basically the shape of space-time. So that's a very powerful uh, observation, and this, astronomers are very excited to make that kind of observation. So we have two advantages of gravitational lensing. One is that just like a telescope or like a lens, it can make things brighter. 
Um, so we can see very distant galaxies, um, you know, maybe tens of times, 30, 40 times brighter than it would be without the lens. And that means we get more light. It's like we have a much bigger telescope. Um, and uh, so that, that's also an advantage of gravitational lensing is that we, it magnifies the, um, the light and we can, we can get a lot more information about those distant galaxies than we would without the, without the focusing effect. Speaking of light, uh, you were talking earlier, uh, Dr. Gardner. Um, we're, something that I'm curious about is uh, with the phenomenon redshifting, we know that light over time shifts to the, to the infrared spectrum. Uh, because of this, assumedly uh, James Webb would have a maximum range of detection before the, uh, the wavelength is no longer detectable by James Webb. Um, mm -hmm. What do we know? What the maximum range of or the theoretical maximum range of James Webb is based on the redshift effect? So yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, the limit is for Hubble, and Webb goes far enough that we're not expecting to hit that limit. So that is fundamentally um, the reason why Hubble has a limit to how far it can see. Um, so. Light is um, light from stars, um, particularly young stars that are just forming, uh, comes out in the in the ultraviolet. But once it gets um, past a, a fundamental transition of hydrogen, the gas between the galax galaxies and gas between the stars will just absorb all the light. So there's a there's a limit to how short of a wavelength um, that you can see from a star or galaxy. That gets stretched out by the expansion of the universe when you're looking at things that are far away. And it's actually a good way of knowing if a galaxy is very far away is that you just don't see it in the bluer filters. You do see it in the redder filters. There's this big sharp break where the gas between the galaxies is just wiping out all of the light. Um, so Hubble has a limit of how far it can see because based on how far into the infrared it can see. And that limit is something like um, a bit less than a billion years after the Big Bang. Webb was designed from the beginning to go out further into the infrared um, by a factor of um, more than 10, between about 15. So 15 times um, the redshift, uh, Webb could still still see the, the wavelengths. Um, but what we expect is that there won't be anything there to see. Because what we're hoping to do with Webb is to get to the point where the first galaxies in the field that is pointed at, where those first galaxies were formed. And um, we expect we expect to see forming galaxies, baby galaxies, at the at the very distant, um, very high redshift, and then when we look at higher redshifts than that, we don't see anything because there isn't anything there, or there isn't any um, concentration. There's not a galaxy there. There's just gas. That's right? great. So, Thank you. So Webb is not going to be limited in how far it can see by by the by the redshift in the way that Hubble is. Nice. Uh, we are quite the international bunch of people here, so we are quite interested in the collaboration between space agencies. 
you already mentioned the different instruments from ESA, Canadian Space Agency and NASA. But how will that be in future? Who would operate what instrument? And could you tell us about it more? Sure. Um, yes, Webb is a product of the world. Um, as I mentioned, it's, it's jointly between NASA, um, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. Um, all three agencies are contributing hardware to the mission. Um, in total, there's 14 countries that uh, work on hardware, um, uh, the US, Canada, and 12 European countries. Um, all of the partner states of, of ESA um, contributed at least money and, and uh, software and so forth. Um, but um, but it's, 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 a, it's an open process for what science we do. So NASA's the lead, so we, we, will, we run every year, we will run a open competition to select the very best ideas for where the telescope should be pointing. And um, the time on the telescope is allocated by hours. So there's 8,600 hours in a year. And each year we will take up to that number of proposals up to, um, you know, some proposals will be smaller, 10 hours. There'll be some big proposals with 100, 200 hours, um, maybe even bigger. Um, but each year there's an open competition and astronomers from around the world send in their proposals for what they would like to do um, and how much time they want on the telescope to do their project. Those proposals um, will are read by uh, a team of, um, of scientists, about um, up, upwards of 200 scientists are involved in this, in this review, all in different panels for different science areas. Uh, they, they pick the best science and um, that's what we'll do and then a year later we'll have another call we're right in the middle of that for the first year um, the proposals went in at the end of november there were um, almost 1200 proposals um, something like 45 different countries uh, contributed proposals um, proposals from around the the united states um, and uh, europe of course canada but also um, asia uh, Australia, just all, all around the world, there were astronomers who would write their proposals. And um, NASA, ESA, and CSA, we want to do the best science that this telescope can do. This is a, this is a product of the world, and it's a, it's a contribution to the world. Um, everybody should benefit. So, um, so the, the peer review has uh, just met. They just finished um, uh, making their their decisions. Um, it's now in the final review stage, and in probably about two to three weeks, um, the the first year of observations will be announced. What projects um, we'll be doing, um, and it's uh, it's open to anyone around the world. Speaking of international uh, collaborations here, uh, we heard that uh, you have a little bit of an international connection yourself. Yeah, so I, after my PhD, um, so my history is um, I went to uh, college at Harvard, um, got a bachelor's in astronomy, and then went to graduate school at the University of Hawaii. Um, 
There is a bit of a space story in that. Um, while I was an undergraduate, um, my uh, the summers after my third year and fourth year of, of University of College, um, I was a summer intern at the Goddard Space Flight Center where I work now. Um, had a project working with, uh, with a camera for the Spitzer Space Telescope. And um, I graduated, I got my degree in 1986, which was a very, um, not a pleasant year for space. That was the Challenger accident. Um, I uh, wanted to work in space astronomy and some kind of space field, but uh, with the Challenger accident, um, that it was clear that that was going to delay uh, the launch of Hubble. The launch of Hubble was originally going to be late in 1986. Instead, it was launched four years later once they got the shuttle flying again. So with that, um, I decided to uh, give up on space for a while anyway, and I went to Hawaii where they have the big ground-based telescopes. I did my PhD in 1992 from Hawaii, and I got a NATO fellowship to go to the University of Durham in the north of England, um, which has a very strong department in cosmology and the study of, of galaxy evolution. I was there for um, on, on the NATO fellowship, and then again, as uh, after that, I was picked up as, as a um, University of Durham postdoctoral researcher. I was there for four years, and then by 1996, um, Hubble had been launched in 1990. Um, they had the first servicing mission um, to repair the optics in 1993, and they were about to put on the telescope uh, a spectrograph called the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph and an infrared camera, the near-infrared camera, just the shorter wavelengths called NICMOS. Um, and uh, I was hired by the, the spectrograph team to come to Goddard um, to work with, uh, with the data from Hubble. Um, but I, I lived for four years in England. Um, I had a great time there. Durham is a beautiful city. Um, while I was there, I got married. So my wife is, uh, is um, local to that area. She grew up in the city of Darlington, which is nearby Durham, and she was working in Durham at the time. Um, she followed me to the United States. Uh, and um, here we are. We have three kids. We've been married for 25 years. Fantastic. Um, just jumping to Hubble, as you mentioned it there, it's obviously mm -hmm. near its, the end of its operational life. What would you like to see happen with it? Um, salvage some parts for public display somehow? I know we've got some uh, future salvage missions to try and bring uh, space junk down back down to Earth or try and just get rid of it altogether. Or would you like to see maybe at least recover a portion of it or something like that, maybe to put it within a museum rather than... Because I believe the theory at the moment is just to deorbit it in some some form. Yeah. So first of all, as I mentioned earlier, we'll keep it going as long as it goes, as long as it keeps working, as long as it keeps able to do science. We will keep Hubble going because um, it's actually working very, very well right now. Um, well past its design lifetime, but unlike Webb, it doesn't have any anything that gets used up. Um, the, it, in low Earth orbit, you don't need fuel to maintain the orbit. Um, it does have, uh, it will eventually um, come down. 
um, the the orbit it's in, uh, there is a, enough residual atmosphere to just slow it down a little bit um, over time. And um, that, uh, I think that the current prediction is sometime in the 2030s, um, it would deorbit, it would come down. And um, we can't let it just fall um, because you can't have a big thing like that fall on the ground where there might be people. Um, so the current plan is to go up with a uh, with a steerable rocket to steer it into the Pacific so it doesn't land on on people. Um, when it was first built, the idea was that it would be brought down by the space shuttle at the end of its lifetime um, to put in a museum. Um, the decision was made after uh, two space shuttle accidents that it wasn't worth um, that that risk um, just for a museum piece, um, iconic as it is. Um, so uh, we don't have a plan to uh, to bring it down. It, it's I know your your uh, your viewers understand this pretty well, but it's it's as hard to land something as it is to to launch something. Um, yeah, yeah. It's hard to bring something down safely and have it have it come down safely as it is to launch and uh, um, and to some extent as expensive. Um, so, uh, of course, um, people are thinking about what happens. Um, uh, you know, the astronomers, um, I think the world hopes that Hubble keeps going for a number of years. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we would love to see Hubble and Webb working together. Um, because they are complementary. Um, Webb is a successor, it's not a replacement. Um, so we want to keep Hubble going as long as it can. And what happens at the end? Well, we'll, we'll need to keep it safe. But uh, of course, people are thinking about maybe we could send another mission up there to, uh, to get it going again or to boost it to an even higher orbit. Um, who knows? Yeah, um, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on there, Dr. Jonathan Gardner. Absolutely fantastic. We could poss quite possibly just talk all night uh, with yourself. I'm uh, sure everyone else feels the same here. Um, obviously, after the show here, we've we'll, uh, got some questions from the viewers, but uh, I'm just going to wrap up the show here now because uh, always we'll just be going on for hours on end, I think. Uh, thank you for joining us on this week's episode, everyone. Uh, I've been Ryan from The Space Update. I've been Mikko, the host of Deep Drive Fridays. I've been Rich LB, co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. And I've been Kage, also co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, and big, th big thank you to everyone listening, to all our Patreon supporters, uh, Anthony Mann, Warhawk, Angry Astronaut, Howard Walker, Samuel Scuro, What About It, To The Future, Gaio Pagolari, Fram Rick, Susie, and Marco. Uh, if you would like to uh, support what we do here at Total Space, Space Network and gain access to exclusive content, early access, and to chat to uh, guest shows, show hosts after the show like today and um, head over to patreon.com forward slash total space and where else can you find us guys you can find us on uh totalspace.net we have a uh well it's not so new anymore but uh newish uh website 
Um, you can also find us on uh, various social media platforms, including on Twitter, uh, Total Space Net. Uh, we have a not so active Instagram currently, but uh, we do have one. Um, but you can find all of our socials on totalspace.net. And just before we wrap up, actually, uh, Dr. Gardner, do you have anywhere where we could find you on the internet and follow your work? Well, so you can learn about the Webb telescope by at web.nasa.gov. So um, watch us as we ship it down to South America and um, count. we count backwards in French because um, it's an Ariane 5 launch uh, and hit the big red button and off to L2.